Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast from Taylor's Media. I'm, as always, your host, Andy Davis, and this is episode 34. I hope you're all well. The industry seems to be coming back to life with most people off furlough and open for business, as are we, of course. It's a beautiful day here in South London. The heat wave has passed, enough to allow me back up into the loft to work without feeling like a pizza going into the oven. And, rather conveniently, that leads me nicely onto the subject of this week's episode. We're talking about where design goes from here. In particular, just how might the enforced changes to our lifestyles caused by the lockdown affect how we use and design our homes in the future? Has the experience of working from home, home learning, connected with nature, spending so much time with family, has it fundamentally changed what we need our homes to be going forward? One person who certainly thinks so is Dr Tara Hipwood, a lecturer in architecture at Northumbria University, and I'll be talking to her about this really fascinating subject in a bit. A quick reminder here that the best way to listen to this show is by subscribing in a podcast app such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Many of you listen to the show through a web browser and that's fine too of course, but by subscribing you can see all the previous episodes and get notified when new ones go live. Just search KBB Review, all one word, and remember to leave us a nice review too as my mum really likes reading them. But first... It's Taylor's Media shameless plug time, of course, and I wanted to keep everyone aware of what we're up to. The September issue of KBB Review has just gone to print. That's the first one back after lockdown. So work is already well underway for October, and the same goes for Studio Magazine. That's our title for residential interior designers and architects. We've also just closed the October issue of Kitchens, Bedrooms and Bathrooms. That's the one out at the start of September. And again, the November issue is already out of the blocks. Why am I telling you all this? Well, we want everyone to know that we're open for business, fully functioning and planning well into 2021 and beyond. And we'd love to talk to you about your marketing needs and how we might be able to help. I hope, I hope, we've proved through the lockdown just why we're the market-leading titles in this sector and we'd love to work with you to get your messages out to the most engaged audiences around. Contact your usual Taylorist account manager or drop me a line today. The links are in the episode description. Now, the coronavirus has prompted a lot of conversation and speculation about how it might affect society, the way we live, the way we shop, and of course, the way we use our homes and the rooms in them. So I'm so pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Tara Hipwood, who is a lecturer in architecture at Northumbria University. Hello, Tara. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for sparing us a little bit of time. I assume it's the end of the year, it's the end of the academic year. Is everyone just out getting socially distanced drunk? (laughs) Um, unfortunately not, not yet, but we're getting there. We're almost over the line. So I think the, the students probably might have been out getting socially distanced drunk, but um, I'm hanging on in there for another week, yeah. <laughs> What's prompted this is a really interesting article you wrote called How the Pandemic Could Change Our Homes Forever. And I read it and it's such a fascinating subject, uh, especially now as we come out of lockdown and we try and define what this new normal is that we all keep hearing about. Let's start, I think, by skipping right to the heart of the matter before we go into some details. I mean, you're a lecturer in architecture. Do you think that architecture and the design of the environments we live in needs occasional upheaval like this to make even people who've been doing it for years think differently? Yeah, I think I think for sure anything uh, like this makes us question everything that we've taken for granted maybe for a while and and even I think highlights things that maybe we knew were problematic beforehand but it really underlines those those issues and I think what the COVID-19 pandemic has done is it's really highlighted inequalities in housing especially in the UK 
and that those inequalities are really health inequalities. So I think it does offer us the opportunity to kind of rethink housing in particular and and how we could improve access to healthier, more sustainable housing for everybody. Obviously, it's much harder to self-isolate and it's certainly much harder to self-isolate without it having really negative impacts on your mental health and well-being if you live in a really overcrowded or in poor quality housing. But it's not like it's not like we weren't aware of these things before, you know. It's just that the amount of time we've been spending indoors during lockdown has really brought those impacts into focus for a lot more people. But, you know, maybe we can do something positive out of this and maybe we can start to address some of those inequalities. Yes, and the change of routine, I suppose, has just made people look at things from a slightly different angle. I take my own example of this. Through periods of the year, I very rarely see my house in daylight, for example, because I leave the house when it's dark and I come home when it's dark. And it's just odd sort of see my house in different stages of the day, which I don't normally do. Yeah, I think it's interesting. So the the research that I did on on housing, housing improvements, really, and how they kind of interact with a, a much wider network of social activities that extend beyond the home. What was really interesting listening to householders talking about why they'd made certain changes was the way they described this almost sort of choreography throughout the day in how spaces might be used. So obviously for some people, some people had that pattern of kind of everybody goes to work or children go to school and then you come back and every everyone's in the house for an intense period of time and, and it's almost kind of like maximising the house as a social space in a very limited period of time. But then you also get other people who work from home on a regular basis describing the rhythm of the day and how spaces might go from being a study space or an office during the day when they're the only person at home and then changing into a much more kind of social space in the evening once their spouse or their partner and their children come back. And of course, COVID has really thrown all of that up in the air now because now you don't get this sequence of occupation. For a lot of people, everybody is at home all the time and that actually throws up quite a lot of conflicts for some of those spaces, kitchens being perhaps one of the best examples. The fact that everyone's at home all the time will affect how we use our homes, but in fact not just how we use them, the functionality of them, but at least where we might buy it in the first place. Yeah. So again, a lot of householders described how they would buy a home in a particular location. Schools were a big issue. So obviously they were buying a a home in an area that had access to good schools. And then they would adapt that home to the, the needs of their daily lives. Or it might be about commuting distances to work or access to public transport. So I think as soon as you start educating from home or you're not commuting to the office, or, you know, you're more reluctant to use public transport, all of a sudden, a lot of the reasons why you chose that home in the first place sort of start to come a little bit unraveled. Uh, And maybe you start to question what merits a good location under pandemic conditions. It might sort of draw your attention more to the home itself. And, And as you were saying, kind of like what are the conditions in the house during the day that you actually want to be working in? And that in turn will affect... I mean, very practically speaking, the budgets they may have to spend. So they might move somewhere or live somewhere where the property is cheaper but have more money to spend on changing it into the environment they want as opposed to buying somewhere in an expensive area. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it might be, you know, it might be about going somewhere where your money will buy you more space going somewhere where your money will buy you a garden, uh, you know, going somewhere where you've got access to more green space, um, to better cycle paths um, and routes, things like that. You know, somewhere where you can walk to the shops and you don't even have to worry about how you're going to get there in public transport. And so, yeah, I think it does It does really call us to, to start to question what it is that makes a, a good location. And as you say, you know, potentially people spending more money on improvements and making the house the way they want it rather than going for buying that house in a desirable location and thinking, well, you know, maybe I'm going it, to, it's just about getting into a good school and then maybe in four years time, we're going to sell it and move on to the next place. One of the things you talk about is about what's going to happen with the trend for open plan living. Now, this is obviously massive in, in the kitchen environment, of course. And actually, we've been seeing within this market moves away from complete open plan living for a while now the the move to broken plan living the idea of trying to zone areas but you're saying that actually what we've what lots of people will learn from all being at home together all the time is that the need for people to find their own spaces rather than all being in one big communal area is more important than ever yeah, I mean, uh, it was one of the most common changes to the home that people describe. So I spoke to a lot of younger families. And in, in that case, it was very much about that idea that everybody could come home. So if you've got quite a limited an, an evening, really, where everyone's sort of coalescing in the kitchen, it's about, you know, children being able to do their homework and you being able to help them or support them or talk to them whilst you're preparing dinner. You know, and the other thing that that often included, often included, uh, there were a lot of extra bathrooms included or washrooms at ground floor levels. So the idea that, you know, if all the kids came home from rugby at the same time, you people could shower off and, you know, you weren't trailing mud through the house. But they were these these quite big. So they very often included that kind of study space, the kitchen space, a space where you could hang out and watch television so that everyone's spending time together. And I'm not saying that people aren't going to want to do that anymore. Of course they are. But I think what a lot of people have found when they've been trying to work in those spaces over the last three months is actually when you're trying to have, well, for example, like this situation now, if, if I had a child running around while we were trying to have this conversation, it makes these kinds of meetings and online interactions quite difficult in some circumstances. And you end up with with certainly couples I know having to take turns in scheduling their meetings because they can't actually both make themselves heard online at the same time. Yeah, that's why I have a loft. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I am I legendarily, I am up in the loft. Yeah, it's the, I mean, you call it this phased pattern of occupation, that choreography of people coming past each other. But it's very understood what the function is at various times of the day, whereas what people have found here is these phases to sort of merge into one great big lump of everyone being around all the time. That's it. And and I think part of it is is sort of social and behavioural. And I think with time, we will, it, it's the unfamiliar, unfamiliarity of it. These choreographies have been figured out over a long period of time, and eventually they will adjust. But I think as they adjust, and we figure out how to manage that, that then has material implications for what the home can do to facilitate that particular dance of different activities that are taking place within the home. Yeah, and you touched on it a little bit already, but the fact that kids might be doing more study at home and to have parts of the house that are specifically for that, as opposed to all sat around the kitchen table or having a desk shoved in the middle of their bedroom. It's about uh, making an environment for learning. Yeah, I think, well, 
actually, I, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but the, the Decent Homes programme, which ran, I think, between 2000 and 2010. So that was actually aimed at upgrading uh, some of the most sort of like the poorest quality homes in the social and the private uh, rented sector. And actually, a lot of what it was dealing with with things like fuel poverty, so people who were spending more than 10% of their income on heating their home and trying to make those spaces, trying to make those homes more energy efficient. But when they actually came back and evaluated that, one of the things that was most interesting was they found that the educational attainment of children in those homes actually increased primarily because children could kind of break off into a separate space and study, whereas previously, because there'd been prioritisation of which spaces families were going to heat, they were all crammed together in one room and children were trying to do homework in spaces where they couldn't really concentrate. So actually, whilst children, especially younger children, probably are going to need some supervision, are going to need some help, particularly as children get older, having that that space, that peace and quiet, I mean, much like any of us, to actually go away and be able to concentrate on something is really fundamental to long-term educational attainment as well. It's funny we talk a lot about kitchens, but if but the bathroom side of things, is it as straightforward as we just need more of them? Um, I don't think it's as straightforward as we just need more of them. I mean, homes are getting more and more bathrooms all the time. I mean, when I was talking to some of my Householders, some of the householders were actually mocking themselves slightly at how they'd suddenly ended up with three bathrooms in a three bedroom house. They sort of ended up being this proliferation of bathrooms without them even necessarily intending to quite do that, but that's just the way it ended up. But I think that there, there might be a rethinking of where those bathrooms sit within the home. So, for example, it might be that an ensuite does allow for a certain amount of self isolation if one person in the home is ill. But at the same time, we could even go back and see maybe the reintroduction of something like your your traditional cloakroom, sort of just inside the door when people come in, because that then offers that additional layer of buffer space, if you like, between inside and outside, where you can maybe wash your hands after coming in, before coming into the rest of the house. I think whilst people are still in quite a defensive mindset, that's quite an appealing idea. Or even if you have guest rounds to sit in the garden, they can come in and use the bathroom without having to walk through the rest of the home. So it's it's partly about maybe location. But I mean, I think we could even see. So, for example, I think most of the fittings and products that we have in the bathroom, of course, they're intrinsically designed to be hygienic. The kind of materials they're made out of, the light colours that the shape of them, they're designed for us to be able to clean them easily and to be able to see when they're not clean. So I think for a lot of those fittings, I've kind of intrinsically got this relationship with with hygiene just because of the nature of the bathroom space. But I think what we might start to see perhaps a little bit more of, and again, this is speculation, but it's sort of a logical follow on really from what happens in a lot of public bathrooms is automatic taps potentially you know, or lever-operated door handles, maybe things that don't require quite so much contact, because I think it's those things, it's taps and door handles, which have become quite problematic in some ways. After everybody's seen the the COVID-19 posters shortly before we all went into lockdown covered in bacteria, I'm not sure any of us will look at a door handle in quite the same way for a little while. (laughs) Yeah, and what's also interesting is, if you sort of tie all these things together in a much wider interest in the overall environment, and I don't necessarily mean, although this is part of it, of course, the sustainability of things, 
but the actual the air quality the air conditioning the heating all these things that if you're spending huge amounts of time in the one area you, you're going to invest that bit more time and money into Yes, it's actually really interesting. So a lot of companies have, have started thinking a lot more about their office spaces and actually the implications that things like having access to natural light, having good indoor air quality, you know, all of these things actually have on our, our productivity. And actually, if we're not doing that work in the office anymore, if we're doing that at home, to what extent do we want to transfer those considerations to our home working environments? I find myself quite often having to make that trade-off between, you know, it's getting really warm in here, but also if I open the windows, then there's an awful lot of noise coming in from outside from the street, which is maybe not a a trade-off that you might have to make in an office because they might have a slightly more advanced cooling, you know, ventilation system, or the noise pollution from outside might have already been taken into effect. But I think we haven't really thought that much about the impact of, of environmental issues within the home on our productivity because we've always assumed that we will be working elsewhere but actually now we're working from home maybe that's something that will be given more consideration yeah and a natural extension of that is this is a trend anyway but we're talking about acceleration here perhaps is the desire to connect with nature a little bit more what we call biophilic design the natural light the connection with nature well-being health that kind of thing Yeah. So again, that's something that people who design offices, you know, um, so there's a standard, the well building standard. uh, And that's one of the things that they pick up on really is that actually people in offices, they are more productive when they have that connection with nature. And I think that within homes as well, I mean, I guess for, for those people lucky enough to have gardens and things, maybe there's an element of that already. But I think particularly for people living in in flats and things, that idea that actually it's it's really useful to have that contact with nature i mean even if it's just a view i mean even better if you can actually get out there and engage with it a little bit more i think it's fundamental to our well-being but it also goes both ways in that obviously then if we have more empathy with nature then that makes it easier to understand and address some of the sustainability concerns with regards to a lot of office buildings and and also housing, which again contributes a huge amount to our national CO2 emissions. It's quite specific, isn't it, that the move is towards, you're arguing here, I think, you're moving away from very architectural gardens as well. There's a biodiversity about them, there is a naturalness about them. Some areas of the garden given over to growing your own food and things like that. I'd say it's it's moving away from formal gardens and monocultures, really. I wouldn't necessarily say it's less architectural gardens, but I think I think you can definitely have these kind of productive landscapes that can also be beautiful. And I think that that engagement with with nature, as I said, has not only been shown to be really beneficial for us in terms of kind of engaging with nature. People have even said, so I think there was a, a recent book about landscape and gardening and its effects on mental health called The Well-Gardened Mind, where they actually argue that it's it's about contact with nature, but it's also that process of nurturing something is actually really beneficial for us as humans. But obviously that idea of us being more self-sufficient and reducing food miles and things also has a huge a huge benefit uh, in terms of environment and sustainability. One of the things, uh, certainly at the very beginning uh, of the lockdown, when we were seeing these uh, regular sort of photographs of empty supermarket shelves, I think that that made a lot of people very aware of how reliant they are on systems that are to a large part out of their control. 
And in some ways, by bringing something like growing your own food or making your own bread into the home, you sort of reinstate an element of control over your life that makes you feel a little bit less vulnerable. So in some ways, having those garden spaces and spaces where you grow your own foods, I think it also helps to reduce people's anxieties as well as having, you know, other wider environmental benefits. And of course, a lot of kitchens these days, in fact, the vast majority of them probably are built on the back of the house with the enormous bifold doors. And it's this link, this blurring of the line between the inside and the outside that I think ties in exactly with all the things that you're saying. This is it. I think a lot of people want to have, uh, uh, you know, the the bifold doors are a, a typical example. But I think one of the reasons why those are so popular is I think a lot of people want to reinstate that relationship with outside to be able to you know, maybe even take the dining table outside when the weather permits in the UK. And also, I think a lot of parents want their children to have that connection with outside as well. It's something people are, are realising is a really important thing to kind of instil in children for their for children's own well-being as well, for them to spend time outside and to appreciate and understand nature. And a lot of parents feel more comfortable doing that, even if they're busy working indoors, if they can actually keep a visual, visual connection with what's happening in the garden outside as well. So there's also a good parenting or, or perceptions of good parenting, I think, element to it as well. And one of the things that people are always looking for when they get a kitchen in particular, but bathrooms too, is storage. It's all about storage. And one of the things that's come out of lockdown, I, th- I think, that, again, a little bit of a trend that was already there, is buying in bulk, you know? Yeah. The, the part of it is about stockpiling, which came out the start of the lockdown, but it's also about realising just how much packaging is being used if you buy lots of little things as opposed to one big thing. And you've got to then find somewhere to put it. Yeah, uh, a lot of the householders I was speaking to, so they've gone back to the idea of almost a separate utility room or larder that you could kind of use for storing items in bulk, or even, you know, those people who had gone down a more self-sufficient route where they'd grown a lot of stuff on the allotment. Obviously, everyone knows that if you grow stuff on allotment or something, there's one point of the year where you've got more apples than you think you could possibly ever consume. And you have to try and figure out what you're going to do with all this stuff. And you find ways of storing it or cooking it and storing it. And you need somewhere to put all of that. Uh, And I think that's something that really needs to be factored into house design. So I guess a lot of what I've been talking about so far is existing houses. But I think a lot of that needs to be factored into to new design of new houses as well. I mean, in the UK, we have on average one of the smallest housing stocks in in the whole of Europe. You know, I think we average 85 metres squared compared with, you know, I think it's it's 98 metres squared in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands is a densely populated country, you know, and yet their houses are, are a good 13 metres squared larger than ours. And the other thing is that we subdivide our houses up into really small rooms in the UK as well, uh, which is why we end up with these really small, dark spaces. So I think going forward in terms of new house design, the idea of storage and being more generous with space standards is is really important. I read a whole thing where someone argued that every new build house should effectively have a locker rather than a letterbox, for example, because everything is ordered online. What's the one thing wrong with that is that you're never in when people are delivering things. And if built into the fabric of the house would effectively be a storage facility where delivery drivers could drop off your online shopping when you're not there. Yeah, I mean, it it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's just one of those, those kind of things where the fabric of our our homes, I guess, hasn't necessarily kept pace with the way that we, we live and the way that we shop now. But I mean, it, it does sound like a, an incredibly common sense sort of suggestion, doesn't it? 
Tom, I, honestly, I could talk about this all day because it's so, it's so, so interesting. But time beats us as always. I have to do my own research, my own study, Dr. Davis here, into the most important question that's facing us all, which is, of course, Tara Hipwood. Dr. Tara Hipwood, <laughs> what is your deserted Kitchen Island disc? What is your most positive, feel-good, get-up-on-the-dance-floor song? Oh, I don't know if you'd describe it as feel good, and it probably belies my age. Someone picked Radiohead, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with Presidents of the USA, Peaches. Oh, right. Alternative. 90s alt rock. Yeah. Really good chill out song. <laughs> no, that's good. I'll, I'll go along with that. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting choice. But, you know, it's not Queen Don't Stop Me Now, which is what most people have chosen, but that's absolutely fine. I'm all for that. <laughs> but, Tara, thank you so much for your time today. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. It's going to be so interesting to come back in a year's time and see how much of this is correct. Thank you for your insights and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Tara. That's it for episode 34. A huge thanks to Dr. Tara Hipwood from Northumbria University there for her very perceptive insights. I'd love to know what you think about what comes next in terms of how we use our homes and what it means for kitchen and bathroom design. Drop me a line anytime. The links are in the episode description. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Search KBB Review, all one word, and leave us a nice glowing review as it encourages other people to give us a listen. See you next time. 